from deep inside your audio device of choice. From sunny old London, ladies and gentlemen. It's uh, something you don't hear every day and something you don't see every day. It's, these are the days when you can uh, lull yourself into believing that the city doesn't have an execrable and depressing climate. The th- This is your brain, because it's still going on, on the war on drugs. By the way, if you're uh, wondering just why the Philippine President Duterte called President Obama a, quote, son of a whore, unquote, last week. Duterte was elected to get tough on drugs. He is, but well, he's there, Donald Trump, but he was elected because he's part of the war on drugs. And he's the, the reason Obama roused his ire was because Duterte, since he was elected, has been extrajudicially killing suspected drug growers and drug sellers. And the president of the United States wanted to have a talk with him to go tut, tut, tut about extrajudicial killings. You know, like the kind we do with drones. Anyway, this is your brain on the war on drugs right in the United States. Albuquerque, New Mexico, best known as, I think, the only major American city with two Qs in its name, hauls in more than $1 million a year by seizing cars, sometimes from innocent people, in defiance of state law and public outrage. That's the claim of a mother who wants the city's civil asset forfeiture program declared unconstitutional. Just one aspect of increasingly unpopular police actions in ABQ, public outrage at policing for profit forced the New Mexico legislature to pass a reform law which took effect uh, last year, banning most forms of civil forfeiture. But Albuquerque continues to do it and plans to expand, even after two state senators sued the city because the city had approved $2.5 million in new bonds to purchase a larger parking parking lot to hold all the cars the city expects to seize. If you don't know what civil asset forfeiture has been, it's been going on in the war on drugs for years. We've talked about it on this program. Albuquerque has seized cars and trucks for more than 1% of its residents. They they get to seize your property if they suspect you of, of drug thing, even if you're never charged or even proven of it. And then they get to keep it and sell it and keep the money for their, for their own budget. One car for every 66 residents in Albuquerque has been seized. The city raked in more than $8.7 million from its civil asset, the civil asset forfeiture program during that time. That is your brain on the war on drugs. Maybe, maybe it was a good idea gone wrong. Um, you may have seen, ladies and gentlemen, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States um, well, I talked about it last week right here on the, the radio program. You may have heard it, uh, a ban on antibacterial soap. However, it's an incomplete ban. According to Quartz, a news site in New Zealand, the rule does not affect any other products other than bar soap and uh, liquid soap. Um, it doesn't affect any other products which do contain cli- tri- triclosan, which include... Get ready for the list now. Cosmetics, shaving creams, even some toothpastes. It doesn't impact hand sanitizers and sanitizing wipes. 
The FDA says it still needs more information on those before making any final rulings. The whole point was that soaps uh, containing this chemical get into the water supply. Toothpaste, of course, wouldn't because you don't spit it. Oh, sorry about that. And you know about a little occupation called greenwashing, where corporations attempt to seem... uh, more environmentally friendly than they might otherwise be. New information on this from Reuters. U.S. companies that have expressed the most fervent public support for President Obama's environmental agenda are also funding the biggest enemies of that agenda. The scores of U.S. lawmakers who are climate change skeptics and oppose regulations to combat it. This is according to a Reuters review of public records. The donations from companies including PepsiCo, DuPont, and Google... Don't be evil, Google. Reveal a disconnect between how these companies present themselves to the public on environmental issues and how they manage their political contributions to support business-friendly policies. Inconsistency between a company's environmental positions and its political giving may point to a need for better oversight, says one observer, or it may just mean it's business as usual. The Reuters Review covered donations made during this election cycle by the political, act, political action committees of 30 of the largest publicly traded American companies that signed Obama's American Business Act on Climate Change Pledge last year. That was a public promise to enact climate-friendly corporate policies and support strong climate change oversight like the Global Accord signed in Paris. 25 of the 30 companies are funding the campaigns of lawmakers featured on a climate deniers list That list includes more than 130 members of Congress, nearly all Republicans, and is a who's who of the biggest opponents of Obama's plan to fight climate change. Some of those on the list dispute the label denier, describing themselves merely as climate change skeptics. Greenwashing. It's going on. Hello, welcome to the show. I think I just recalled a time It was not the moon and not the wine And though you said you were a friend of mine I never felt that way inclined Our days were hard and the nights were long I must have sung a million songs But all the words just came out wrong On the last day of summer I tried to I think you broke my heart that day. 
From just off Leicester Square in London, where the buskers are uh, thriving, apparently. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And welcoming back, uh, well, first of all, I'm introducing a new feature on the broadcast uh, about man's impact on the planet. And uh, I, take, I take the text from uh, the first book of the Bible and... So here to read that for you, to exemplify what I'm talking about, is our old friend, Ralph the Talking Computer. Thanks, Harry. If it's not asking you too much, can I have a little biblical reverb, please? All right, I'm going to see. Adrian, can we get some? What's that? Are we all right? All right, so we have some biblical reverb, Ralph. Genesis 1:26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Beautiful. Ralph the Cocking Computer, reading two biblical verses relating to dominion. I say dominion. Oh.
And here's the latest example of man exercising dominion over the earth. Rhinoceros could be extinct in 15 years. Just 5,000 black rhinos and 20,000 white rhinos remain in the wild in Africa, where illegal hunters slaughter them for their horns. The Fish and Wildlife Service explains the demand for rhino horn are, uh, is based on their supposed remedies, which range from cancer treatments to hangover cures, driving unprecedented poaching. In addition, objects made of rhino horn have more recently become status symbols to display success and wealth. Says uh, Yufang Gao, a doctoral student in anthropology at Yale, rhino horn is not plundered mostly for its use in traditional Asian medicines. He says not in his native China. In China, the market is driven by interest in art and antiques purchased not as status symbols, but as investment pieces. That reflected disconnect, Gao says, is rooted in cultural barriers and miscommunication and could be an important obstacle to ending the illegal trade and poaching. I'm sure the rhinos really care, whether it's medicinal or investment. Nor do we, really, because we got Dominion, new copyrighted feature of broadcast and our thanks, as always, to Ralph the Talking Computer for bringing it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a, a tale of airport security on this September 11th. McClatchy News Service says an audit last year found the TSA officers, Transportation Safety Administration officers in the United States, found weapons only three times when undercover investigators passed through airport security checkpoints, 70 times with weapons or mock explosives. That's a failure rate of 95%. The then-administrator lost his job. We are not safer than before 9-11, regardless of the money and energy spent to change airport security. That says Michael Boyd, an aviation consultant and longtime former airline executive. The TSA approach, he says, is a dud. It is a giant bureaucracy with zero accountability for failure. Well, excuse me, sir, but the administrator got fired. That's more accountability than we got out of the Army Corps of Engineers. I, I'm going to tell you that right now. I'll tell you something more in a moment. No, I'm right here. I was just thinking. Events in the past month underscore how TSA officers behave in the face of potential terror. When false reports circulated of gunshots at Kennedy Airport in New York, TSA officers and civilian security guards abandoned their posts and joined a stampede of hundreds of travelers. Two things have improved security since 9-11. Only two, says security expert Bruce Schneier. They are re reinforcing the cockpit doors and teaching passengers they have to fight back. But the uh, Air Marshal Service has made an average of 4.2 arrests per year from 21 to 2010. We're spending $200 million per arrest for the Air Marshal program. And uh, Boyd says, our back doors are wide open at airports. He's speaking literally. Ground security for airliners is really weak. Things like catering carts, cargo pods, etc. have no security. That's after 15 years, ladies and gentlemen, of us taking our shoes off, waiting for hours. It, yes, 15 years ago, everything changed. For the better. 
I'm over here. I'm just looking at something. Don't mind me. I'm just looking at equipment because uh, nothing, nothing gives me more satisfaction. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole, Jr. The Paralympics leadership hoped Rio de Janeiro would build on the success of London. Instead, it's about limiting any damage. Almost everything for the Paralympics has been scaled back. Venues, seating, and staffing. Paralympic officials say no sports or nations have been cut out, except for the Russians. But the athlete experience could suffer. Only a last-minute Brazilian government bailout helped save the event from a shortfall in the local privately funded operating budget. This is the worst situation we've ever found ourselves in at the Paralympic movement, said Philip Craven president of the International Paralympic Committee. We were aware of difficulties, but we weren't aware it was as critical as this, he says. Reorganizers, as you know, limped through the troubled Olympics, buffeted by empty seats, green water, and swimming pools, and the absence of an Olympic field, that's according to the Associated Press. Behind the scenes, there were no-show volunteers and traffic chaos. But Craven says he's been assured there are, quote, sufficient resources to put on a very good games, unquote. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's promise that the crippled Fuk nuclear plant was, quote, under control. That was a promise he made in his successful pitch three years ago for Tokyo to host the 2020 Olympic Games. That was, quote, a lie, according to the former Prime Minister of Japan, Junichiro Kuizumi. Kuizumi, one of Japan's most popular prime ministers, maybe not now, became an outspoken critic of nuclear energy after the Fuk thing. Abe gave his assurances about safety at the Fuk plant in his speech to the IOC in September 19, uh, 2013 to allay concerns about awarding the Games to Tokyo. The comment with, met with considerable criticism at the time. It is not under control, Kuizuma added, citing his example. TEPCO's widely questioned efforts to build the world's biggest ice wall. They keep saying they can do it, but they can't, Koizumi said. Experts say handling the nearly 1 million tons of radioactive water stored in tanks at the Fuk site is one of the biggest challenges. Might be good for the sailing events. The Olympics, ladies and gentlemen. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. Now, news from outside the bubble. Things are going so smoothly now, aren't they, Officer Adrian? You may not have heard this. That's why it's outside the bubble. But according to Reuters, Iran has kept to the nuclear deal it signed with six world powers last year, limiting its stockpiles of substances that could be used to make atomic weapons. That's according to a report by the UN Nuclear Agency. Oh, well, the UN confidential report by the IAEA, seen by Reuters, did not point to any violations in Tehran's observance of the deal, which, as you know, was opposed by hardliners in Iran and the West. The hardliners agree. 
Throughout the reporting period, Iran had no more than 130 metric tons of heavy water. Ooh, this water's heavy! Iran's total enriched uranium stockpile did not exceed 300 kilograms, the report said, citing the nuclear deal's limits on the two substances. No substance abuse. Earlier this month, a U.S. think tank said Iran had been secretly allowed to overstep certain thresholds in order to get the deal through on time. A diplomat says no limits had been exceeded apart from one incident which the agency reported in February. The Institute for Science and International Security think tank, headed by a former IAEA inspector, said one of the secret concessions exempted unknown quantities of low-enriched uranium contained in liquid, solid, and sludge wastes. It also said Iran had been allowed to keep operating 19 radiation containment chambers, more than set out in the deal. Hot cells used for handling radioactive material, but can be used for misused for secret, mostly small-scale plutonium separation efforts, it said. The diplomat in Vienna said any hot cell activity that could be used to breach limits would be reported by the IAEA, which it had not done. Iran has also given fresh documents to the IAEA, it said, to move toward further normalization of its status under the so-called additional protocol, the agency's monitoring procedure, which all member states are supposed to adhere to. I, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go on record. I'm in favor of normalization anywhere, anytime. Not enough normal in this world today. News from outside the bubble, the copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you uh, may have noticed there are multiple instances of the circumstance in which lower-level people get punished for things and the upper-level people skate. Examples in the news this week. A A Volkswagen engineer has pleaded guilty to involvement in the German carmaker's diesel emissions scandal. He's the first to be charged as part of the U.S. Justice Department's year-long criminal probe into the firm's rigging of federal air pollution tests. An engineer, James Liang, he pleaded guilty to violation of the Clean Air Act, a count of wire fraud. Who uses wires? We're wireless, babe. Didn't you see the Apple presentation? And a consumer fraud count. Volkswagen has already agreed to spend up to $16 billion to address environmental state and owner claims. Mr. Liang is a German national. He worked in VW's diesel development department in Germany before moving to the United States May 2008. He was a part of a team of engineers based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that conducted emissions tests on the diesel engine at the heart of the controversy. He could face five years in prison, although by cooperating with the U.S. federal government, he could reduce his jail time. Uh, He'll face the court in uh, early next year. Now, it could be that we're, you know, the Justice Department is moving slowly after a year-long investigation, trying to flip lower-level employees to gain more evidence about the people, the executives, who actually put this uh, policy into motion. And it's possible that lower-level engineers will be the only ones ever prosecuted. 
FBI files on the firms that contributed to the 2008 financial crisis should be released to help the public understand why no senior executives were, of the banks were charged. That's according to a U.S. congressman, Bill Cat Pascrell, asking the FBI director for transcripts, notes, reports, and memos from the uh, FBI probe into the financial crisis. The FBI looked into at least 14 companies as part of its investigation into the origins of the crisis, which we may remember. Pascrell sits on uh, the Budget and Ways and Means Committee, said in many cases it would be too late to bring legal actions, but releasing the information would increase transparency and provide a public service. And, of course, you also know that this week Wells Fargo Bank, one of the largest banks in the United States, paid a, agreed to pay, I don't think the check is cleared yet, agreed to pay a $183 million fine and fired 5,300 employees for engaging in a scheme in which phony bank accounts were opened, phony credit cards were issued, because the employees were under extreme pressure to increase sales of accounts and credit cards. But no executives who may have designed the program encouraging them to do that were named or charged. They always say a fish stinks from its head But what if it started from a tail instead It's just a few bad apples messing up the bunch a few bad apples bringing up your lunch just a few germs can start a common cold just a few cells dying off make you so very old it's just a few bad apples they're so rotten to the core a few bad apples Maybe seven more Don't be angry Save the outrage Don't get mad It's just those few bad apples Not spending time in chapels Just those few apples going bad It's just a waste of time looking top of that tree cause the rotten fruit is hanging so close to you and me just a few drums can start up a parade just a few defective oranges can spoil the many just a few bad apples and it happens every time Bad apples, and those suspects are to prime. An answer that's the simple makes me glad. There'll always be those apples drinking more than snapples. Just a few bad apples going bad.
From London, this is Le Show, and now, the Apologies of the Week. It's a good week for apologies. Lena Dunham apologized to New York Giants wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. for making, quote, narcissistic assumptions, a quote, about his motivations in an article published Friday on her website. In a discussion with Amy Schumer about the most recent Metropolitan Gala in New York, Dunham said she was seated near Beckham, who she claimed was looking at his cell phone instead of her because he found her sexually unappealing. Dunham apologized on her social media account, saying she projected her personal insecurities onto the football star and presented them as facts. She said he, she and Beckham have never met, and after listening to a lot of valid criticism, understands that it is wrong to ascribe misogynistic thoughts to a stranger. Assign them to your friends, babe. Dayline London, British Airways travelers were suffering delays globally due to a computer ditch in the check-in systems, the latest in a string of technical failures to hit major international airlines. It's like they're not spending enough money on the uh, back office, because that's where the profits are coming from. Travelers took to social media to complain of long lines. The, airport, the airline said a number of airports were affected. The airline apologized and said passengers are now being checked in at uh, British airports as usual. BA had to apologize already in Janu- in July after computer glitches and check-in systems also delayed passengers. It began installing new systems last October, completed the rollout earlier this year. You're just beta testers now. Air China has apologized for safety tips to London-bound travelers that have been called racist, and it sparked outrage among some British politicians. On Thursday, China's flagship state-run airline issued the statement regarding the incident, calling some of the commentary featured in cabin magazines, in-flight magazines, inappropriate and not representative of the company's views. The safety tips in the magazines had said, London is generally a safe place to travel. However, precautions are needed when entering areas mainly populated by Indians, Pakistanis, and black people. The advice is at odds with London promoted by its mayor, China announced all copies of the publications have been discarded, and airline officials demanded that its magazine producer acknowledge and learn from the incident. In their own letter of apology, magazine editors said the incident was due to an editorial mistake, which is at odds with the article's intent to promote London's beauty. We would also like to send sincere apology via Air China to passengers and readers who feel uncomfortable because of this, the letter said. I think they learned. An Australian schoolboy has apologized. Or an Australian school has apologized after a schoolboy who attended a, an event in costume as Adolf Hitler was named as one of the best-dressed students. The scandal unfolded at St. Philip's College, a private school in the outback town of Alice Springs. The school apologized to the Jewish exchange students who were present. The principal confirmed the student asked a respected staff member for permission to dress up as the Nazi dictator, and she had said yes. In a busy school, the student did go to a respected staff member and said, is this okay? And the staff member said yes. Now she's absolutely shattered that she said that, and I'm really concerned about her well-being. Quote. But wait, there's more. A Texas mattress company that was condemned for airing a commercial promoting its 9-11 Twin Tower sale will be closed indefinitely, the owner said. Miracle Mattress promised to be silent through Sunday's 9-11 anniversary and reiterated its apology to people offended by its commercial that featured a pair of employees toppling tw- two towers of mattresses. A statement issued by the company's owner, Mike Bonanno. Any relation? Nah. 
We take full responsibility for our actions and sincerely regret the hurt and pain caused by this, dis- ri- this disrespectful advertising campaign. The 22nd commercial shows three employees enthusiastically offering any size mattress for the price of a twin size one. What better way to remember 9-11 than with a twin tower sale, a woman says. Two men then fall over backwards, knocking over two towers of mattresses. We'll never forget, the woman says. Well, I covered all the bases. The ad promoted widespread anger. Geraldo Rivera says, The man we knew as the blustering genius who invented our mighty Fox News channel is a deceitful, selfish misogynist, if the charges against him are true. And if they are true, then his shame and banishment are well earned. This is from Geraldo Rivera. Like virtually all my colleagues at Fox News, I was totally blindsided by his sexual harassment scandal. I apologize for my skepticism. Like victims of sexual assault, those alleging harassment deserve the presumption of credibility. And he said, New York Magazine's Gabriel Sherman deserves my apology. He's on the right side of history. I I was wrong and am paying the price, unquote. The price is that Rivera's new book, to be published by HarperCollins, also like Fox News Channel, owned by News Corp, Nice Corp, has been pulled because perhaps the speculation goes of his fulsome praise in the book for now disgraced Roger Ailes. Airbnb will soon display, uh, soon display user photos less prominently, promote instant bookings, and introduce technological changes, all of this to address widespread reports of racial discrimination against non-white guests. This is according to a report by a consultant hired by Airbnb. The changes were announced following months of criticism, sparked in part by the Twitter hashtag Airbnb while black, which featured accounts from African-American users who said they were discriminated against on the platform. Chief Executive Officer Brian Chesky wrote in an email, we have been slow to address these problems, and for this, I am sorry, unquote. Not for screwing up residential neighborhoods and cities all over. The- hey, we're doing apologies here. The U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency apologized this week for a tweet that got snarky with China. I like my snarky with China better than with, uh, you know, paper plates. There was a spat on the tarmac after President Obama flew to China for the G20 summit. As you may have seen, there were no stairs provided for the plane. And the U.S. official argued with a Chinese official about where people should go. The DIA, DIA the Defense Intelligence Agency, and an intelligence, one of the 16 intelligence agencies we have, ladies and gentlemen, never enough, the DIA ended up tweeting this, quote, classy as always, China. They quickly deleted it and apologized. Earlier today, a tweet regarding a news article was mistakenly posted from this account and does not represent the views of DIA. We apologize. And going back to the uh, Roger Ailes story, not only did Geraldo Rivera apologize, but 21st Century Fox apologized in a uh, statement, which I'm going to read to you now because it's, it's so nice. It's from Nice Corp. 21st Century Fox is pleased to announce that we have settled Gretchen Carlson's lawsuit. During her tenure at Fox News, Gretchen has exhibited the highest standards of journalism and professionalism. She developed a loyal audience and was a daily source of information for many Americans. We're proud that she was part of the Fox News team. We sincerely regret and apologize for the fact that Gretchen was not treated with the respect and dignity that she and all of our colleagues deserve. We know Gretchen will be successful in whatever endeavors she chooses in the future. 
Um, yes, I know what it smells like, but it's a press release from 21st Century Fox. Did they say all of their employees deserve to be treated with respect and dignity? Yes, I think they did. I'm going to frame that. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of our broadcast. Well, let's get to the political week. It has been one for the books, one for the ages, one for the agents. This uh, this week, Donald Trump, Republican candidate for president, seemed once again to uh, alter, massage, caress his uh, policy regarding immigration, illegal immigration, the status of illegal Illegal immigrants? Yeah, in in the United States. He also participated in an uh, interview with Larry King on RT America. Larry King has a deal when he left CNN. He uh, partnered with Mexican billionaire Carlos Slim, one of the richest men in the world, to uh, do a new talk show. And one of the uh, networks that picked it up, I think the only one you can get in the, in the United States, maybe in the world, is uh, RT America. RT America, R- the RT stands for Russia Today. It's owned by Russia. Owned by Russia. So uh, when that was pointed out to Donald Trump, he, he called in to the show, in fairness. So he didn't see the lights and cameras. But he called in and he said, oh, I thought I was doing Larry King's podcast. To which Larry King responded, well, that's weird because he'd just done my podcast. Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate for president, got into the news the wrong way. He'd been looking for ink for airtime. And uh, in an interview, he was asked, uh, what, what do you think we should do about Aleppo? And his response was, one for the ages, quote, what is Aleppo? Um, so he's probably not going to get that 15% that's going to get him into the debates. 15% of the uh, public opinion polls. And then on Friday, Hillary Clinton at a uh, fundraiser joined the long parade of candidates who have um, unburdened themselves and regretted it at fundraisers. Unburdened themselves at fundraisers and regretted it, starting with uh, Barack Obama's guns and God remark in in the 2008 election and uh, then continuing with Mitt Romney's 47% of uh, voters uh, will never vote for me because they're on the the take from the federal government. Uh, Hillary Clinton described, and she used a neologism, I'm going to speak generalistically, she said. And I thought uh, at first she was going to do an an impression of uh, Franco or something. I'm going to speak generalistically, she said. Um, Half or nearly half of Trump's voters are xenophobic, racist, and uh, not germaphobe, some other phobe. Um, It was not even a complete news cycle before she had to regret saying the nearly half part. She still thinks a lot of his voters are like that. So it was a, a, a memorable week. Uh, I think that the tone, though, you know, the, the um, oh, and also Clinton and Trump appeared uh, not together, but separately. That's the best way to not appear together. 
on a national security for a commander in chief forum organized by NBC News and moderated by Matt Lauer and the media firestorm about Lauer's handling of the moderator duties uh, caused Andrew Lack, the head of NBC News, to send a memo to all employees saying how proud he was of Matt Lauer's performance because, well, I'm guessing that the choice of Matt Lauer was made by Andrew Lack, president of NBC News. Anyway, it's it's a week where the, the tone, I think, needed to be raised a little bit, and I think it's just about to be. We're back. Oh, that's the wrong one. Yes, well, it's not going to be. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll hear that maybe next week right here on this program. Actually, you'll, you'll hear it moments from now here on the show. Stay tuned for the tone to be raised. Brand new. 
This is the second and final town hall style National Security Forum between this year's two presidential candidates, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. I'm Larry King, and we're here at a more neutral location for this event. No connection with any foreign government. The George H.W. Bush Auditorium in Langley, Virginia. Welcome to both our participants and to you watching or listening. Wherever Carlos Slim could get this picked up, by the way, he also owns the best deli in Mexico City. But on to the forum, and at the insistence of both candidates, although they're here in the same secure facility, they're in separate studios. So as not to take all the steam out of the upcoming face-to-face debates. Welcome, Secretary Clinton. Thank you, Larry, and thank you for organizing this on such short notice. Hey, had nothing else to do. <laughs> Mr. Trump, welcome back to you. Thanks, Larry, and uh, seeing the cameras and the lights here this time, I'm, I'm guessing we're not on your podcast. <laughs> They're with me all the time, just in case. First question in our National Security Forum, Mr. Trump, mm-hmm. who was the best James Bond? Larry, honestly, here's the thing. You and I are old enough. We grew up with Sean Connery as James Bond. He was the best. He had the suits. He had the accent. Tell you the truth, I thought to myself, that's what I want to be when I grow up. A, a cool, smooth guy like that who drinks fancy cocktails and shoots bad people. Only the bad people. All right, Secretary Clinton, and I should say each candidate cannot hear the other's answers while the other candidate is answering. They're hearing my wife Sean's wonderful record. Secretary Clinton, who was the best James Bond? Larry, I find it interesting that you put that question in the past tense. Of course, like you, I'm sure, I've loved all the James Bonds so far. I always kind of had a soft spot for George Lazenby, I guess, because I've spent my whole career fighting for the underdog. But to tell you the truth, Larry, Mm. I think it's important to look to the future. And so my favorite James Bond is, is going to be the next one. And the one after that. All right, next question. This goes to Secretary Clinton first. Mr. Trump is getting to hear all of side one. And uh, Mrs. Clinton, mm-hmm. the next question. Enough about the uh, actors. Let's talk about real people with regard to national security. All right. Ethan Hunt or Matthew Bourne? I think Matthew Bourne, Larry, and I'll tell you why. I think he embodies what I think our foreign policy should be about. If there are two words to describe it that I won't have to regret in the next news cycle, they'd be smart power. To me, he represents the kind of smart power that's never afraid to use deadly force, but that's never forced to use deadly fear. That's almost as catchy as one of Sean's tunes. Mr. Trump, Mm. Ethan Hunt, or Matthew Bourne? Larry, I'm I'm going to be completely honest with you. I thought you were going to ask me, what is Aleppo? I think many people thought that's what you were going to ask me. And here's the thing. Mm. Aleppo is a total disaster. And frankly, and this is not a slam on anybody involved in those terrific films, I don't think either of those guys could solve that kind of disaster. I think you're very possibly, I, I can't see you, but I think you, you, you might be looking at the person who could solve it. But I didn't want to name him. Because people would say I'm being narcissistic, which I'm so very not. To tell you the truth, I'm probably the least narcissistic person in the world. And I think if you look into it, you'll find an awful lot of people who agree with me about that. You should have your people check it out. Okay, as soon as we get some people, we'll look into it. Last question. And on this one, we're going to leave show business totally out of it and get into the nitty-gritty of foreign affairs. Mr. Trump, Vladimir Putin, what do you think is his favorite summer fruit? You know, Larry, uh, unlike some people here tonight, I don't have to guess I was with Mr. Putin, who, by the way, I've still never met. 
at a luncheon in Moscow when I was trying to build a hotel there. Thank God I didn't build it. It was such a bad deal. And I walked away from it, made a heck of a lot of money by doing that. But at that luncheon, I saw Mr. Putin ask in the strongest possible terms for a green-fleshed melon, and somebody brought him an orange-fleshed melon. And that person, I was told later, was out of a job like that. And that's what I call a strong leader. So green-fleshed melon, Larry. Believe me. Mrs. Clinton, you may have... Blissed out the Sean singing, just getting back to reality here. Vladimir Putin, in your opinion, what's his favorite summer fruit? Larry, when I was younger, and so much happened when I was younger now, <laughs> but something that was really ugly and repellent we used to describe as the pits. I think our friend Mr. Putin has done some very ugly and repellent things. So I'd have to say one of the fruits with pits. So that would be, uh, what? Well, that, that would be the peach, the plum, the apricot. I think one of those would have to be the summer fruit of choice for a man of Mr. Putin's temperament. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Mr. Trump were sending him a big box of them right now, whichever fruit it is. All right. We've been keeping this forum really on the issues and not personal attacks. I want to thank both of you and congratulate you both for keeping this discussion high class, high level. America faces a faithful choice this November. Hopefully tonight we've all learned a lot. And hopefully our two candidates for the highest office of the land now share at least one thing. Love for my wife's record from the George H.W. Bush Auditorium in Langley, Virginia. Good night. Portions of this program not dealing with non-substantive issues have been redacted. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? Native forest birds on Kauai, one of the Hawaiian islands, are rapidly dying off and facing the threat of extinction as climate change heats up their habitat and allows mosquito-borne diseases to thrive, according to a study released this week. Higher temperatures caused by global warming increase the spread of diseases such as avian malaria. I didn't know birds got malaria in wooded areas once cool enough to keep them under control, the research says. The findings are an early warning for forest birds on the other islands in the state and other species worldwide that re rely on rapidly disappearing habitat. This according to a study published in the journal Science Advances. And then it retreats and then it... No, that's not the whole name of it. Most of Hawaii's forest birds are restricted to forests in high elevations where disease has been seasonal, if not absent. A sharp increase in disease has occurred over a 15-year period in the uh, high forests of Kauai's plateau, a highly eroded crater of an extinct volcano. If native species decline at a rate similar to or greater than that of the past decade, then multiple extinctions are likely in the next decade, it warns. Hey, join the rhino. Two Hawaiian honeycreeper species are threatened, uh, endangered as a matter of fact. The authors used long-term survey data collected by state and federal biologists to document the decline of Kauai's native forest birds, along with surveys tallying the prevalence of avian diseases. And some authors went into the forest to count birds. They were never heard from. No, they, they came back. The scientists found an increase in mosquitoes in the birds' habitat, along with warmer temperatures in the area. Those are some of the correlations that led them to believe climate change is accelerating diseases. 
The authors describe climate change as a tipping point for the sensitive birds. The study is a signal we need to do something about global warming and mosquitoes, said uh, a cultural advisor for the Nature Conservancy of Hawaii, which was not part of the study. It's only a matter of time, he says, before mosquito-borne diseases become commonplace in Hawaii. There are also cultural reasons to care about the study, he says, explaining that Native Hawaiians view birds, plants, and animals as ancestors. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, momentarily, what the frack? Researchers analyzing the genomes of microorganisms living in shale, oil, and gas wells have found evidence of sustainable ecosystems taking hold there, populated in part by a never-before-seen genus of bacteria they have dubbed Fracobacter. Fracobacter. The new genus is one of 31 microbial members found living inside two separate fracking wells. Uh, according to Ohio State University researchers in the journal Nature Microbiology. That's my favorite nature journal. Even though the wells were hundreds of miles apart and drilled in different kinds of formations, the microbe communities inside them were nearly identical, said the researchers. Almost all the microbes they found had been seen elsewhere before, but not candidate Candidatus fracobacter, which may be unique to hydraulic fracturing sites. So we get the gas, we get the water, we get the waste, and we get a new bacterium. It's win-win, ladies and gentlemen. What the frack? Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. You can't imagine how glad I am to be able to say that. Programming turns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the East Coast of North America or the North Coast of East America on the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet, 7.490 megahertz on the mighty 104 in Berlin on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org, available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, tunein.com, and wwno.org. And it be just like getting the headphone jack in your iPhone. You'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh huh.
the tip of the show. Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead, to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans, and to Officer Adrian Bodnam of the Secret Force here at Global Radio in London. He's, look, he's got handcuffs, ladies and gentlemen. Watch out for him. But today, he just provided help for today's broadcast. Boy, did he ever, as did the fabulous Judith Owen. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on, and an opportunity beyond measure, well, no, there's small, medium, and large, to get Cars I Talk t-shirts all at harryshearer.com, won't you? You know, I'm wasting my time on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. Won't you? show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from sunny London town.